Father, thank you for promising us that you would send the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Thank you for promising to show us all the things that there are to know about Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Help it to impact our hearts in a way that helps us to see your reality, to confess it is true, and to accept you more deeply in our hearts than we ever have before. This is a miracle only you can do. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to take over in this place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You imagine as the time began to tick by. I don't know how long he was used to these conversations going, but this one was going far longer than he had ever experienced before. I'm quite sure of it. And as the hours ticked by, he had to wonder, how long is this going to go on? Will this continue for the entire day? He had to have gotten tired. And in fact... The man on the other side who was having the conversation, he was deeply searching his heart. And he was confessing absolutely everything that he could think of that was wrong in his life. And he was confessing through this tiny little screen to the person on the other side. And he confessed and he confessed and he confessed for six hours long. Can you imagine confessing to somebody your sins for six hours long? He was trying to remember every single misdeed in his entire life and trying to confess that to the priest on the other side of the screen. (laughs) And finally, he walked away, and then he came back because suddenly he'd remembered that he forgot one. (laughs) And so he had to go back into the confessional, and the confession, the the, the words that were, were told the confessor said to him was, man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Don't you know that God commands you to hope? It's described in the book, Here I Stand, that Martin Luther learned from experience, the cleverness of memory in protecting the ego. And he was frightened when after six hours of confessing, he could still go out and think of something else which had eluded his most conscientious scrutiny. In consequence, the most frightful insecurities beset him. Panic invaded his spirit. The conscience became so disquieted as to start and tremble at the stirring of a windblown leaf. The horror of nightmare gripped the soul. And this is the picture of God that Martin Luther had. That's why he joined the monastery in the first place. There was a flash of lightning and he said, God, if you don't kill me, I'll join the monastery. I'll become a monk. That was his picture of God. And this led him for six hours to rack his mind. And not just on this, that was, that was the most extended period, but regularly, continually, he was going and confessing his sins. Finally, the guy that we talked about a few weeks ago, who was sort of a mentor to him, who introduced him to the love of God, began to help him along in understanding the forgiving love of God. Thankfully, Martin Luther 
was set free. And we keep talking about Martin Luther as we journey through the book of Daniel because his experience gives us a picture of what religion can look like when it's gone wrong and how a person can come from seeing a dark picture of God to seeing a beautiful picture of God. Not that Martin Luther himself is perfect, not that he came to an understanding of everything, but have you ever experienced this before? You start off to confess your sins. First John 1.9, an important verse says, if we confess our sins... There's an if there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've been talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, the cleansing of our heart. Clearly, confession is an important part of that. And I love how this, uh, in, in, the 18, in 1891, E.J. Wagner was giving a, a message to the general conference. And this is after... 1888, he's giving this explanation, a further explanation of this most precious message of Jesus being lifted up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Notice what he says about confessing sins. He says, now the idea conveyed in that expression that we have confessed all the sins we know of, did I read that right? Now the idea conveyed in that expression that we have confessed all the sins we know of, but still we dare not acknowledge freedom from condemnation. For fear that there are other sins we do not know about and therefore have not confessed is really bringing a serious charge against God. So if I go on saying, well, you know, I've confessed everything I thought about, but I don't know, maybe there's one hiding in the closet, so maybe I'm still under condemnation. So this is actually pointing a finger at God himself. Notice what he goes on to say. Oh, we don't have it there. What he goes on to say basically is, this makes God out to be forgiving the, forgiving the most the man who has the best memory. Have you thought of that before? Is, it, is my salvation based upon my memory? If so, I don't know about you, but I'm in trouble. There are things that I've done since my baptism at 12 years old in high school that I can guarantee I don't remember. Just this week, uh, somebody called me up, and <laughs> it was my principal from, from back in high school, and he, he affirmed me for being on the basketball court and not taking somebody out, and he said, most guys would have taken him out, and you really represented Jesus in our school well. And I said, what? <laughs> you got the right guy, right? <laughs> I said, what about the time that I didn't represent our school right on the football field? And he's like, you know what? You're human. He said, but I was really impressed by what you did in that situation. And I thought to myself, how many things don't I remember that I have done in my life? And if God is relying upon my memory, I'm in deep trouble. I don't know about you. Who is the one who convicts of sin? John 16 says, it's the Holy Spirit who will come to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. My role is to turn and open my heart at every whisper of the Spirit of God, because that is the path of salvation. So what does this have to do with Daniel chapter 9? Well, we're going to find in Daniel chapter 9 the, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, the longest prayer in the Bible, and one of the most beautiful confessions that I've ever read. 
Daniel chapter 9, you can pick up your Bible or you can read it on the screen. Verse 1 says, in the first year of Darius. This tells us that we're no longer where the visions of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 took place. Those took place before Babylon had fallen. But now we are under the Medes and the Persians. This is around the time of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. We don't know if this happens before or after, likely just before, because this is in the first year of Darius. Darius reigned for two years before Cyrus came in as king. I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. You know, this tells us something about Daniel. Daniel is a statesman. He's a busy man. He's the top man in the empire or close to it. It's amazing that he wasn't uh, done away with. They didn't normally have prime ministers go on from one uh, regime to the next. But it tells us that Daniel, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of all that he had to do, he had time for studying the Bible, for studying Bible prophecy, for looking at the Bible and saying, okay, what's going on in the world? How can I understand what God is wanting to do? So he looked by the books at the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So which prophetic book is he studying? Jeremiah, and he's found that there's this mention of 70 years. So let's go and study. Maybe we can pretend that we're like Daniel, and let's study the book of Jeremiah and these 70 years together. We find the first mention of this in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. So then this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jerusalem's going to be ransacked. Israel is going to become desolate for 70 years. Well, let's keep going to get the context of this. Earlier in chapter 25, verse 3, it says, This is the 23rd year, this is Jeremiah talking, in which the word of the Lord has come to me. Can you imagine? He's been a prophet for 23 years to these guys. He says, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened to me. 23 years I've been trying to tell you what's happening, and you're not listening to me. Then he goes on to say this, and the Lord has sent you all his servants and the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. You know, the first lesson about uh, confession, aside from the Holy Spirit being the one who impresses us with what to confess, is that the Bible is the way that God uses to, con- to, to impress us when we're going the wrong direction. It's the Holy Spirit primarily uses the Bible. And the more you pour through this book, the more that you'll recognize the difference between the reality that you think is the way is the right way and the reality that God is, is acknowledging is the right way. Today, in early service, we talked about confession and what people thought of that word. And one definition that, that helped me was to think of this. Confession is an admission of reality and how the world operates, which is really the antithesis of denial. Does that make sense? Right? On the one hand, I can deny no, what I'm doing is not a problem. This isn't a way that ends in death until I fall off a cliff. <laughs> or I can embrace the reality and say, okay, this is the way that ends in death. I'm turning from this and I'm turning to Jesus. Confession is accepting, acknowledging the truth of how reality, God's reality, works. So here he says, you haven't listened to the prophets. Let's go back a few more chapters to chapter 22 and verse 3. Let's find out a little bit more about what Jeremiah for 23 years was trying to tell them. 
Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Watch out for somebody that's being oppressed, that's having their stuff taken from them, that's, that has a nation ruling over them that shouldn't. Whatever it is that somebody is weak and somebody strong is taking advantage of them. Watch out for that and deliver the hand of the oppressed from the oppressor. Do not wrong and do no, do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger. That's the foreigner. Watch out, Jesus says again and again in the Bible. God's telling us, watch out for the foreigner because they don't have the rights and privileges that you have. Watch out for them in a special way. The fatherless, watch out for the orphan. He doesn't have parents to take care of him. You've got to be there for him. Or the widow, she's lost her husband. She doesn't have rights in the ancient Near East. A woman was in such danger. Watch out for her. Nor shed innocent blood in this place. Verse 4, For if you indeed do these things, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accomplished by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. This is God's ideal. If you listen to what Jeremiah is telling you, then into Jerusalem will come riding kings who will sit on the throne. This is the opposite of what ends up taking place. Because notice what it says. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Because the whole purpose of that house is to represent the character of God. And if that character is misconstrued among the nations, God cannot let that continue. If the oppressor is able to continue oppressing, if the fatherless is not taken care of, if the widow is not taken care of, if, like we talked about last week, if Isaiah 58 is not followed, then God's character is maligned among the people. This house, God said, will become a desolation. Verses 11 and 12 talking about um, the king Jehoiakim. It says, He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. He's going to be led off to Babylon. Why? Notice what it goes on to say. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. He's building his house and he is mistreating people along the way. And his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages. He's not paying his workers. And he gives him nothing for his work. Who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. And all the while he's building up his little kingdom by neglecting the needs of the people around him. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Now, now notice this. Then he, he hearkens back to a king who was the father of Jehoiakim. He says this. Did not your father eat and drink? This is Josiah. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him when he did justice and righteousness. He judged the cause of the who? He judged the cause of the poor. He saw, hey, this person, they need something. And the, the needy. There's people in want, people that don't have. He saw this. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me? <laughs> the problem was they didn't know who God was. And not knowing who God was was evidenced by the way that they treated the people who were weak and helpless around them. Second Chronicles 36 gives us a picture. So, so why 70 years? Why, did, why was this 70 years decreed? Well, 
on the end of it, this is what the prophet says about why there were 70 years. And those who escaped the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her. Let's try it one more time. And the land had enjoyed her. All right, so there's something about the land that needed to enjoy its Sabbath. And as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What is this all about? It, she, she needed it, the land itself needed to enjoy the Sabbath. Now, this isn't talking about the seventh-day Sabbath alone, although it may be somewhat inclusive of that. But let's go to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 10, which describes this picture. It says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. All right? So for six years, they were to, to work in their land. They were to harvest everything for six years. Then it says this, But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You see, every seven years, they were not to plant anything. And what was the purpose of that? That who may eat? That the poor of your people can, can come to your field and they can eat. And that the beasts of the field can come and they, they can eat. And that the land, in other places it says, could have rest every seven years. Today we rotate crops and we, we, we do other, other methods of, of similar things to try our best to take care of the land. But there was more than this that took place on the seventh year, um, and maybe we'll get to a little bit more of that in a second, but uh, Roy Gain in Leviticus and Numbers, his commentary on Leviticus, and he's a, an incredible uh, genius on the book of Leviticus. He teaches at the Andrews Theological Seminary, but this is the NIV application commentary, and he's, he's got an incredible amount of knowledge, but he says this, the cyclical release of land and debt slaves in the Jubilee year is unparalleled in the ancient Near East. So every seven years... And then every seven times seven in the, the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, there's the year of release and debts are, are let go and slaves are let go, which is different, a little bit different than the, um, what we might picture of when we talk about slaves. Uh, they, were, they were indebted to the person and so they worked for the person and that person was to care for them and take care of them until seven years had gone past. And then debts were forgiven. Debts we're forgiven. Can you imagine what that would be like for millions and millions of Americans who are getting by paying that minimum payment on whatever loan or whatever debt they might have out there? And that minimum payment gets nowhere near ever really getting to the, the, the actual amount of the loan, and it's just paying to that company, and they're saddled with debt. That wasn't the picture of the society that God had designed. Then it goes on to say, In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. The picture is of giving the land rest. Now, Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 27 says this, And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its... Sabbath, as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. The picture is that 
this whole idea of forgiving debts and of land being going back in the 49th year to the original owner. Everybody got to have their land back, no matter the mistakes that they had made. They got their debts forgiven. This picture is beautiful, but it never happened on record. For 400 plus years in the history from the time that Moses was at Mount Sinai and received these instructions until the exile, we have no record of this ever taking place. You see, it's too easy to grab onto our stuff and and to think, well, this is mine and I've earned this and and they owe me and so I'm hanging on to this. But God said, I'm going to set things right. I will fix this and the land will enjoy its rest. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. Now notice, when Daniel is going to be praying, he's going to be making his confession. He doesn't just talk about Jeremiah, but he talks about this. He says, the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. The curse and the oath in Leviticus 26, it's come true to us. Because we've sinned, we violated this sabbatical law that every seven years people should be set free the poor should be able to eat from our land we've neglected this we've sinned and god has sent us into captivity but the good news is that that oath doesn't stop there just a few verses later verse 40 says this but if they what If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. Isn't isn't confession a beautiful thing? God calls us to simply acknowledge that we're broken, we're messed up, we've fallen short of His glory, and we acknowledge that and He says, all right, Healing is available for you. Transformation is available for you. Think about this. You go to the doctor. Say you go to the dermatologist. My wife has to exhort me before going to the doctor. Make sure that you tell them about this. Make sure that you tell them about this. And and don't forget that spot over there. And make sure that they look at this. and, And make sure, because she knows something. I'm a man. And a lot of men die because they're unwilling to tell the doctor the full truth. They're unwilling to confess reality. I may be hurting, but I don't really want to tell the doctor that. I don't really want to acknowledge what's going on inside of me. And when the doctor gives me a diagnosis and he says, look, you've got cancer. Look, you've got a broken bone. Look, I need to cut that out or it's going to to eat your skin away. Whatever he might tell me, I have the choice. Will I allow him to work or will I go on in my own way that he says is going to result in death? It's the same with God. God gives us his word and he says, there's a way that might seem right to you, but I'm telling you, that's going to end in death. But I have come that you might have life. I haven't come for condemnation. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, I'm not going to judge you. You have what judges you, the words that I've spoken to you. The reality is that I have come to save. I've come to heal. If they confess, that is all that they're asked to do. Then I will remember my covenant and I will remember the land. Roy Gain describes this. He says, here at the climax of Leviticus, there appears at first glance to be a massive letdown. It's like we're going and crescendoing and all of a sudden it's like, (gasps) what? Like a dramatic pause in Beethoven's symphony. If the Israelites will confess, their sins. 
There's been all these rituals, all these things for, for what the Israelites need to do, and it gets to the climax. If you fail in all of this, then here's the deal. You better confess that you've messed up. Just say, look, we went the wrong way. That's all. Only confess. No elaborate ceremonies. Only humbling themselves before the Lord. Admitting they have made bad choices and putting themselves at his mercy where they really have been all along but wouldn't admit it. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) It's to confess, look, God, you've been merciful to us. Don't go away from us. Don't leave us because we're lost without you. We confess that we need you. It's so beautiful. It sounds too simple, but what the Lord has wanted all along is for his people simply to return to loyalty and dependence on him. That we'd come to trust him. That we'd come to truly know him. Jeremiah 29 gives us this promise more clearly of what they were promised should things go wrong and they're in captivity like they're going to go into captivity. It says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. He says, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to bring you back. Then he says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Don't you know that you can hope in God? He's on your side. He's your judge. And he only wants to save you from that which would kill you. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. At the end of the seven years, what you need to do is you you need to to come to me to call upon me and, and I will gladly show up to you. I will rescue you. Verse 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Notice in verse 10, he says, I'm going to come there. I'm going to search you out. I'm going (laughs) to, and then he says, if we seek him with all of our heart, if we open the door, if we, we turn off the television, the music, whatever it is that's distracting us, and we simply look at Jesus, if you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. It's a picture of hide-and-go-seek where he's really bad at hiding. He's hiding behind one of those tiny little trees and his shoulders are visible on both sides. And he's like, if you look for me, if you just take a moment to look for me with all of your heart, open up your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. So Daniel, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. He reads this. He's, He's been studying the book of Moses. And as he reads this, he realizes something. We as a people have not come together to really do this. So it says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Um, that's described as basically the picture of what death is like. He's, he's, he's bringing himself to absolutely nothing. Like, we're, we're destitute without you, God. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said. Now remember, Last week, we talked about what a true fast looks like and what a true fast does not look like. This fast is not for the purpose of gaining God's favor. This fast is for the purpose of acknowledging the fact that helpless human beings have been neglected, that the character of God has been misrepresented, that, that God's name needs to be exalted. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, now, when you think of confession, 
I don't know what the first thing that comes to your mind is, but my mind begins to think about, okay, I'm going to list off all the things that I've done wrong, and it's good to acknowledge. Again, like we're saying, we're, we're acknowledging reality, acknowledging that is not the way I want to go. I want to go a different way. But notice what confession looks like. As he begins his confession, are you ready to see what confession looks like coming out of the mouth of a prophet? O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. What's this focused on? How does confession begin in the heart of Daniel? It begins with, God, you are incredible. You're good. You are so loving. You keep covenant. You don't fail. That's how confession starts. It does not start by digging and trying to figure out on our own what we've done wrong. It starts by looking to the goodness of God. And as we acknowledge the goodness of God, we begin to recognize, ah, this is so far from the way God is. I don't want that in my life anymore. This This is not the way God treats people. I don't want that in my life anymore. And he goes on to acknowledge that next. We have sinned, committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts. And your judgments. He, he looked through and he studied and said, we've been far off the mark. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. We haven't been listening to the prophets as they've told us these things. Oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel. Notice he says, righteousness belongs to you, but shame to us. There's nothing good about us. Confession is not to merit something that somehow Daniel is now going to be worthy of acceptance with God. What he's saying is, God, you are faithful. You don't stop loving. And we've fallen far short of that. Forgive. Those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Now notice that his confession is rooted in the goodness of God. Every time throughout this chapter, and we're not going to read the whole thing, I encourage you, read it this afternoon. Read Daniel chapter 9. Because as he confesses, whenever he confesses, he starts with talking about how incredibly good God is, how incredibly merciful God is. And then he goes on to acknowledge where he's fallen short of that, where his people have fallen short of that. And he includes himself with his people. Notice that whole contrast. He says, you on the one hand, God. And then he says, we on the other hand. Now, the fascinating thing is that had Daniel ever made a mistake, at least in scriptural record, we don't have anything on record. We might maybe get an inkling here or there, but there's nothing in record of any mistakes that he'd made. But he identified himself with the people. And we'll get back to that in a second. But let's look more at this whole, the you versus we contrast. As he goes through this prayer, he says, God, you are great. You are awesome. You keep covenant, meaning you keep your promises to us. You are faithful in working the plan of salvation. You keep steadfast love. You don't stop loving us steadfastly no matter what takes place. That's chesed, a beautiful word in the Bible. You're righteous. You're merciful. You're forgiving. You sent prophets to us early. You are a lawgiver. You confirmed your words. You've kept your promises You rescued us from Egypt. And then he ends by saying, because of your great mercies, we're making this prayer. (laughs) You see the beauty of what he's describing about 
who God is. And then he goes through what is the reality for the we, for us, for, for the corporate Israel. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. We have departed from precepts. We have departed from judgments. We have ignored your prophets. We are shamed today, and we have been unfaithful. We have disobeyed. We have transgressed, and we have departed from obedience. There's a contrast here. He's describing the goodness and the glory of God, and he's saying, look, we've fallen short of the glory of God. He's confessing reality. And he's making it a corporate confession. Do you see that? He's saying, we have done this. Was Daniel actually there doing this? Was he the one who was mistreating the poor? Was he the one that, that, that was doing the things that were described in the law of Moses? Was he an idolater? We know that he wasn't. He was far from that. And yet he acknowledged that we have fallen short. And you know, there's power in that. When I step down from my pedestal, I'm like, look, we've messed up. We have fallen short. This is the way that we have messed up. If I come down to somebody's level, rather than standing up here and saying, man, you guys made a wreck of this. I'm miserable in Babylon because of you guys. I mean, if, if you were as holy as I was, if you didn't bow down like I didn't bow down, if you didn't eat the king's food like I didn't eat the king's food, if only you were like me. And I'm like the Pharisee at the temple, and I walk away unjustified. But if I'm like the tax collector who goes in and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then I walk away justified. And people around me recognize the goodness of God. Review and Herald, December 16, 1890, says, Daniel, in their behalf, Daniel confessed sins of which he himself was not guilty and besought the mercy of God that he might bring his brethren to see their sins and with him to humble their hearts before the Lord. He's acknowledging, we have messed up. There's power in this. Verse 15 continues, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. You see how in his confession, he roots it in what God has done in the past. And what God has done in the past, what did the Israelites as slaves in Egypt do to merit God's favor to pull them out of Israel, out of Egypt? He himself said, I didn't pick you because you are more righteous. That's not why I picked you. I picked you because I loved you. <laughs> I came to you because I loved you. So this is what Daniel roots it in. He says, you're the one that rescued the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But we, and made yourself a name. It was for your character so that people could see your love as it is this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Now, there's a fascinating story in Jeremiah. Because there's not just one invasion of, Babylon, uh, of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. There's not just two, but there's three. And as the Babylonian army, can you imagine what it's like? Your city has been ransacked by the Babylonian army two different times. And now it's getting to the third time. This is in 588 BC. So that's 605 was the first invasion. 588 was the last one. And they're coming again because Zedekiah has rebelled against uh, the Babylonians. And as they come to the city, we wonder, is this really as big a deal as we think? Is it really because they didn't let their slaves go free? Is it really because they didn't treat the oppressed like they were supposed to treat them? 
is Pastor Zach, like, I mean, he's making a, a mountain out of a molehill. Like, maybe he's making this stuff up. The final siege of Babylon, 588 B.C., Jeremiah 34 says this, but afterward, well, oh, I guess I didn't put the whole verses there, so we can get through it a little bit quicker, but you can look at it later. Jeremiah chapter 34 tells us that Zedekiah sees the army sieging the city, and this is what he does. He says, all right, everybody, set your slaves free. (laughs) Set your slaves free. And at first, the nobles and everybody else, the wealthy people, they're like, okay, 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 okay. And they set their their slaves free. But then verse 11 continues, but afterward, these same nobles who had let their slaves go free, but afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return who they had set free and brought them into subjugation as male and female slaves. Now watch this. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were slaves out of the house of bondage saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned after 400 years. I thought, okay, they're finally getting it. They're letting their slaves go free. This is good. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. Everybody setting the people free around them. Everybody loving their neighbor as themselves, which Jesus said fulfills the law and the prophets, treating the other the way that you would want to be treated. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name. You misrepresented my character. How? And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjugation to be your male and female slaves. God says, you totally misrepresented my character by taking them back into bondage. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to give you to liberty, the liberty of the sword, the liberty of captivity, you're going to be taken captive yourselves. You're going to experience what you've been keeping upon the people around you. You see, there's a problem when we neglect to do the good that we might do for somebody else. We tend to focus our confession on what bad things, and a lot of times it's focused on our personal morality did I think a bad thought? Did I? And we go through this list of things. But what about neglecting to do good to somebody that we have the power to? We have the money, we have the time, we have the ability, and we walk by on the other side of the road. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 280 says If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in case of an emergency. Goes on to say in the youth instructor, June 8, 1893, we shall not hear a charge in the judgment against us on the ground of the outbreaking sins that we have committed, but the charge will be made against us for the neglect of good and noble duties enjoined upon us by the love of God. It's tempting to sit here and think, is he really preaching Daniel? This is not the way I heard it growing up. I thought it was about something totally different. Friends, this is what the Bible is about. It's about the love of God, and it's about loving people and giving ourselves in loving service to others as our hearts are cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not 
Daniel goes on to finish the prayer. We do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. No matter how much good I do in my life, I'm never going to point to that good deed. Well, I fed the homeless. Well, I did this good thing. Well, well, Judas was in charge of the money bag for feeding the poor. And the disciples thought on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was going out to minister to the poor when really he was going out to betray Jesus. It's not because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. <laughs> because we know who you are. That's why we pray today. We recognize that you're great. You're awesome. You keep covenant. You keep steadfastly loving. You're righteous. You're merciful. You're forgiving. You sent prophets to us. You gave us the law. You confirmed your words. You rescued us from Egypt. Your mercies are great. Oh, Lord, hear, Daniel says. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. We're supposed to represent your character. Please. We're confessing that we've gone the wrong way. Would you forgive and restore us? Now, check this out. All right? Has Daniel just made himself look good right now in the eyes of heaven? It doesn't sound like it. I mean, he's just said, we, he's included himself with iniquity, rebellion, wickedness, all of this laundry list. He's made it clear that they've totally messed up. And watch, watch how heaven responds to this admission of reality. Verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying, he's still in the midst of his prayer. He didn't even get to say amen. While I was still speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is the one who will appear to Mary. This is the one who is at the right hand of the Father. Gabriel, the most powerful angel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reach me about the time of the evening offering. (laughs) He was still confessing. He hadn't finished yet. Do you remember when the prodigal son comes home? Is he even able to finish his speech to his father? (laughs) He can't get the words out. His father's like, bring the fatted calf, bring the robe, put the ring on him. And think about it like this. If your child comes to you, I'm thinking like a parent. Your child comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm sorry. I, I, I did such and such. And you know that they recognize what they did. Imagine that me as a dad, I stand back. Okay. What else did you do? You, did, did you, did, was that everything? Get, hang on. Did you, rack your memory a little bit more. What does that show me to be? shows me to be a tyrant of a dad. If I don't open my arms up and say, Abby, Livy, whoever it is, it's okay, I love you. Come home. Whatever it might be. The angel runs, flies swiftly to Daniel. And what does an angel say to somebody who has just said, we're wicked, we've done iniquity, we're far short of your beautiful glory? What does an angel say to Daniel? And he informed me and talked with me and said, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. I want to help you understand prophecy, which we'll get to that in a second. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. As soon as God heard and you started praying, God said, Gabriel, go to Daniel. And I have come as fast as I could to tell you, for you are, you're greatly beloved. Can you imagine an angel coming from heaven and appearing to you and saying, 
you are greatly beloved. It's hard to let that sink in. Just this week I was texting with somebody who has moved away from our area and we were texting about things. And all of a sudden he just said, God loves that you're doing that. And I don't know why. It was the end of a day and I thought, what? God loves that I did that? I mean, I know that that God loves me, but I don't feel like I do much good in this broken world. And just to hear him say that was so meaningful to me. Can you imagine what it's like to have the angel that's at the right hand of the Father flying to you as soon as you start praying to say, you are greatly loved by God. That's what God wants for us to experience. This is why confession, admission of the reality of our brokenness, our fallenness, every part that it falls short of the glory of God is so important. But we've got to start by looking to the goodness of God, knowing that we are loved. Notice this. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 114. God's forgiveness. Now, no, what did Daniel ask for? Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Forgive us. And the angel shows up and says, God loves you. Oh, hang on. I said, I said I wanted forgiveness. Notice this. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness goes on to say, it is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love. That transforms the heart. When God shows up and says, You are loved, that transforms the heart and it sets us free to love again. We love because He first loved us. It's the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. Friends, you are greatly beloved. You doubt this? God says that He demonstrates His own love that while we were still sinners, That describes every human being. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration that you are greatly loved by the God of the universe. And letting that sink in, that the Father himself loves you, will cleanse your heart and cause you to live an entirely different life. And friends, the world needs to know this. Another conversation that I had this week I realized that I needed, to, I needed to confess something to somebody. Because, you know, he said, I go to visit my grandkids and my son because I can't live in that city because I have never been profiled like I've been profiled in that city anywhere else in the United States of America. And I said, oh... I'm so sorry. Hang on. Did I profile him? Did I make any judgments about him? Did Daniel make any mistakes? I said, I am so sorry. That is so incredibly wrong. He said, well, you know, I'm, I've been through a lot in my life. I'm used to it. It's not like I'm... I'm. I said, but no, that, that's wrong. And he said, well, you know, sometimes when it happens, I begin to ask, what are we? Are we... Are we still in the 1960s? What's going on? And you could hear 
the appreciation that somebody acknowledged the experience that somebody else is going through. This is not about how we deal with the world on a big scale. It's how you and I deal with individuals. Am I willing to confess everything that Scripture reveals is wrong? Am I willing to acknowledge that even the things that that I didn't do, that maybe my ancestors didn't do, that if that's been done to somebody, that that is wrong and it should not be done to them? Or do I stand back and say, well, that's not really happening that much and I don't know about your experience. And uh, 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 uh. Friends, the fact that I am greatly beloved, that you are greatly beloved, needs to lead me to love like Jesus loved, with arms open wide for a hurting world. I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me and in silent prayer to, first of all, ask that God would help you to see his goodness in such a way that you are led to repentance and confession. And now I want to invite you just to take a moment and say, God, search me and know me. Is there something in me that is contrary to your reality? I want to confess that now. And I want healing from you, the physician. And I want you just to know that Jesus is saying to you right now, you are greatly beloved. And I'll just ask God, help me to absorb that more and show me if there's anybody around me that I need to extend that to. That I need to be willing to, to own up to the wrongs that have been done to them and be the one who steps up and says, that was wrong and I'm sorry that you were treated that way. Father, thank you. You are so beautiful. You're so good. You're so merciful. And and Lord, we don't come to church because of our righteousness. We don't pray right now because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercies. Oh God, would you set us free from our pictures of you that, that lead us to live like Martin Luther rather than like Daniel. Help us to acknowledge the goodness of God, to see the hope there is in you, And may that lead us to a repentance that is a true turning away from sin in our heart. Thank you for your incredible goodness, your incredible mercy. And thank you that this, every person in the hearing of my voice can know that they are greatly beloved by the God of the universe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.